In his best-selling book, Outliers, how many people have read that book, Outliers? I read a lot and read a lot of books like that. Uh, and it, it's called The Story of Success. And Malcolm Gladwell describes how extraordinary people achieve their success. Whether we're talking about the Beatles, uh, whether we're talking about great athletes or Bill Gates, Malcolm's research shows that a magic number of 10,000 hours is necessary to move from the herd to the lead. So to become great at something, you have to invest 10,000 hours, that there's no shortcuts, there's no secret talent that someone needs to possess. It's 10,000 hours. This sounds like a lot of hours, doesn't it? And it is. Can anybody give a guess into how much time that is? How many months, days, weeks, whatever? Anybody want to venture a guess? Oh, wow, 516 days. Good work. I actually, I'm, I'm too slow to figure that out. I can say that it is, is this 516 days? It's one year, one month, and three weeks. No, that would be 13. How many days will that be? Can you, 390? I don't know, like a lot of days. Is, is, it, is it that many days? Is it what you said? Almost, okay. All right, so that is a lot of time, isn't it? And we respect discipline under this end because not many people can accomplish it, right? It's extraordinary. We respect self-control and we admire it because God has hardwired us to want to work hard for something beyond ourselves. But I want to ask you, is there a difference between self-control as the world defines it and discipline as God describes it in his word? I believe they could not be more different. Self-control is the final character trait in the fruit of the Spirit that we're studying right now in, our, in the last of our series, covering the most important choices we can make this side of heaven. The nine choices that are listed in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. We're on the choice that may be in the rear tonight, but it's far from insignificant. It's so important to choose self-control over self-gratification because it pulls all the other traits together. Without self-control, we can't have patience. We can't choose it. Without self-control, we can't have joy. Instead, we'll be given to worry, right? So let's read about it in Galatians 5, verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things... There is no law. The self-control discipline that's promised to us in Christ as a trait we can choose to walk in is different than mere discipline that someone who doesn't know and love Jesus follows. First, the object is different. The discipline that Galatians 5 speaks to has glorifying God as the focus. That's the object of affection. People are loved, jobs are worked, families are raised, friendships are fostered to the glory of God with the use of self-control. Whereas worldly self-control has self as the object. A self-imposed goal of becoming a better employee or a better musician is done to better me so that I can feel good about myself. It's about and worships me, myself, and I. Another key difference is the engine for self-control. The engine for self-control without the indwelling spirit is simply the motivation that I can muster in myself. Whereas through Christ, we can grab a hold 
of the indwelling spirit that gives us power beyond measure to do that which we're called to do in Christ. We can make the choice to be self-controlled then, not through a self-driven 10,000 hours of labor, but by submitting to the Holy Spirit who wants to bring us closer to Jesus than we ever imagined. Discipline is generally not a concept that we're drawn to, isn't it? Is it? Pleasure, yes. Relaxation, absolutely. Discipline, no. Not so much. Naturally, I'll just be honest here, moment of transparency, my go-to... I mean, where I want to be is on a beach in a lawn chair with uh, a drink in my hand with one of those little umbrellas in it with people waiting on me hand and foot. You know, I, that, that's, that's what I naturally, that is my go-to. And I, I think that's why this word discipline grates on our nerves, doesn't it? Because it goes against our natural self. Naturally, the only reason we give ourselves to self-discipline is so that we can have some end goal that makes us feel really good. But the focus is self in feeling good in our own comfort. This word makes the nine choices we're talking about in this series possible, so it's important. Self-control is what makes the, the choice to be faithful even possible. It's the physical and emotional tool that God uses to help me choose peace, love, joy, and all the rest. It's the glue, the hitch that all the rest are attached to. But this concept of self-control can be glossed over, can it? Yeah, I know I shouldn't just give myself to, my, to pleasures, Chris, you know, and we just kind of move on from it. But we have to ask ourselves some key questions so we understand what this trait of the Spirit is and how important it is to our lives and how to apply it. We want to make our punches count for Jesus, don't we? Don't you, don't you want to, if maybe you're older, and in the last chapters of your life, I bet you want to finish strong. If you're just starting out, I bet you don't want to get sucked into the culture around you, but you want to start strong for Christ, right? If you're a parent, I bet you don't want to waste these years where you have influence over your child. If you're in a dating relationship, my guess is you want to make sure that you set a firm foundation for the rest of your life and the rest of your boyfriend or girlfriend's life, whether they're married to you or somebody else. You don't want to blow it. If you're single, you want these years and this time that you have to count for Christ. If you're engaged in a new ministry venture, you want to make sure that this time is focused and that you're walking with purpose in every step. So we ask ourselves this question. What is self-control? What is it? I'm going to state the obvious here. It's choosing to do right even when we naturally desire to do wrong. In his book, Finding the Freedom of Self-Control, William Backus defines self-control as the ability to maintain progress toward a goal even when you're not in the mood, don't feel like making the effort, would momentarily enjoy something else, or find working toward your goal downright unpleasant. Moms, raise your hand. How many of you keep your hands raised? How many of you want your kids to grow up to be healthy, productive, Jesus-loving adults? If you put your hand down, we need to talk, perhaps call child services. Now, for how many of you, how many of you have had to say no to self in order to keep pursuing that goal? You moms, you're the experts in this room, and your sermon preaches your life preaches a sermon much louder than what I'm saying right now. 
I'll add my own definition here, which is better than William Backus's. No, I'm just kidding. It's probably not as good. <laughs> Self-control is being happy about the decision you made last night. It lives for the hope of tomorrow instead of the pleasure of the moment. Self-control is that straight trait of the Spirit that grants us the glorious and mighty drive to live for that day when Jesus reigns on the new earth. The heart-stopping glory of King Jesus is the fuel and goal of godly self-discipline. It casts aside the momentary pleasures of the day for a greater love, a greater hope, and a mounting joy that makes fleeting passions seem like a steaming pile of dung. The New Testament in the original language in which it was written uses the word government for self-control. So self-discipline is about governing self. It's the ability, the supernatural ability, to govern our thoughts and our actions in a godly manner and for his kingdom. And there are many benefits of self-control. First, you can master your moods. How many of us, and I, man, I see life through an emotional lens. I'm a David, not a Paul, so I get it. How many of us can find ourselves led by our emotions, where it seems like we just can't give up the, thank you for being honest. I raised my hand too. See, uh, see Zoe gets me. See, we get each other. Uh, it can feel like we're run by our emotions sometimes, doesn't it? It seems like you can't get out of your funk. You can't get out of the, the temper tantrum that you're strongly, struggling with. You can't get out of the discouragement. You can't get out of the worry. So self-discipline helps us master our moods. In Proverbs 25, 28, it says, Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. If a city is under siege during a time of war and suffers the destruction of her walls, unspeakable evils can enter in. You see, a, a town's walls, back when this verse was written, were synonymous with their autonomy and their sovereignty. If the walls came down, it meant slavery. If you defeated your enemy by destroying their walls, they would most certainly become your slaves. If we fail to choose self-control, we choose slavery. Our sexuality, eating habits, sleep, relationships, job, and use of, use of time, and most importantly, the water of life, our walk with the Lord, is poisoned, and we begin drinking unspeakable concoctions offered to us by the enemy of our souls. Our choice to rest in self-control instead of the desire of the moment is paramount. And I want to say this. If you find yourself... Today, the prey of the enemy of our souls and stuck in addictions or stuck in a mood or an emotion that keeps bringing you down, that is your choice. And what marks you as different from those who know and love Jesus is you can choose through the power of the Spirit to walk away from that. And we're going to offer some ways in which to do that a little later here. So another benefit Self-discipline can tame our tongue. In Proverbs 13, verse 3, it says, Those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. You know, just a couple weeks ago, my son was driving to Cincinnati. He got his license. Yay, he got, took his test, got his license. Uh, the BMV, by the way, is purgatory, isn't it? Yes. Oh, you're only 15 down on the list. 45 minutes later, we get called up, and you would think the paperwork that I filled out to get my son's license, you would think that I was declaring war on Iraq, and I needed to meet with the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of War, 
meet with the House and the Senate and various other entities. I mean, I was signing stuff. People were taking pictures. You know, Fox News was there. It was crazy. <laughs> CNN was there. They both had their separate spins. It was, it was nuts. Um, so I totally lost my train of thought after all that. Okay, now I'm back. Now I'm back. Ding. So many of us in this room can relate to the taming of our tongue, can't we? You ever get mad at the people you love most in your life and wonder how such a small thing as your tongue could rip them apart and, and somehow, what you say, tear them down for years to come? I've been there. James speaks of this. In James chapter 3, it says the tongue is tiny but mighty. He says, like the small rudder of a ship, the tongue controls the trajectory of our lives. Like a small spark, it can set a whole forest on fire. It can praise God and it can act as a healing balm to restore the corrosive power of sin in the lives of others as we encourage them with truth and with love. Just this week, someone shared a poem that they wrote to encourage me and my family. The words have a light, had a life of their own. You see, it's been a rough day, and frankly, as the anniversary of my nephew Jacob's death draws near this month, I feel depression dropping on me like a wet, cold day, sapping my energy and tempting me to isolate. And this friend's words were like a ticket to a beach vacation. They were most definitely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, tethered together with self-control, this person embraced the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, so that me and my family could, be, could receive hope during this time. They chose that instead of zoning out on YouTube or some other temporary fling to indulge self. His choice made all the difference. His words literally lifted up my face to enjoy Christ and experience his loving embrace. I felt the Spirit saying to me through this man's poem, keep going, it's worth it. Self-control is focused on others. Self-gratification is focused on me. Let's move to the next benefit of self-discipline. We can control our schedules. In Ephesians 5, verse 15, Paul says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Our, t- our time is a super valuable commodity, and once it's gone, it's gone. And I believe our greatest temptations as a culture are simply the waste of time. Endless hours of entertainment, we can waste a whole day, myself included, and not even know where it went. It's not like anything we're doing is necessarily wrong in those instances, but our time is wasted. Redeeming our time with self-control is not the weathered commitment of a tired laborer trying to keep a stiff upper lip. Because remember, self-control is the locomotive of joy. Self-control brings joy into our life. Self-gratification makes us bored and boring, doesn't it? You guys know what I mean. I've been there. Endless hours of TV, and at the end, you think, what have I done? You just feel slimed, don't you? You feel like someone has slimed you. You just feel kind of dirty. Like, I've just wasted five hours watching things that I have no idea what I watched. And somehow, I'm exhausted. But if we're given to self-control, we can spend a ton of time doing very important things and be physically exhausted, but yet at rest in our minds and in our souls, can't we? Because our soul feeds on meaningful ministry and on making much of Jesus. 
So self-control allows us to redeem our lives and to do good things that matter for all eternity. Whether you work at a restaurant or a student, work at a construction site or a stay-at-home parent, self-control allows you to live a life under the glory of God. And self-control also empowers us to manage our money. In Matthew 6, verse 24, it says, No one can serve, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. God's word tells us that godly self-discipline keeps us from drowning in the dangerous waters of love of money. This is a major discipline between, or major difference rather, between self-discipline as the world defines it and self-control as it's described by God in Scripture. Discipline can be applied to the accumulation of wealth simply so we can worship the idol of security or the idol of materialism through buying cars and houses and everything else. It can also, godly self-control uses money for the glory of God, for provision for the kingdom, through missions and giving to the church and other ministries and through providing for those we love. We also read that godly self-discipline frees us from debt because debt is a trap, isn't it? It enslaves us. I've talked to so many who are in debt. It wakes them up in the middle of the night. It, it has a, a physical effect, an emotional effect, and a damaging psychological effect. I think two of uh, my friends that actually are co-leaders with me in my home group are a great example of this. Uh, Zach and Alexa Lowe have made tremendous sacrifices to get out of college debt. They're working like crazy. They live with family, work multiple jobs because they want to make much of their time and their money for Jesus Christ. They want to be free. And I just think that's, that's amazing. We have many in this church who are tremendous examples of that very thing. So moving on from finances. Like money, our physical bodies are aided by self-control. So we're, we can also control our bodies through self-discipline. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Sexual brokenness is a part of all of our stories in one way or the other, isn't it? It could be pornography. It could be sleeping around. For others of us, it could be fear and insecurity in the marriage bed. For others, it's same-sex attraction or some other struggle. We all have sexual struggles. We all are sexually broken or have, uh, through the healing of Christ, come out of sexual brokenness. You see, our sexuality is critical. Culture would say, no, it's just a chemical reaction inside of us that we're responding to. But we know, way deep down, that that is a load of crap. We know that's true, don't we? We know there's something sacred about our sexuality Because God says that marriage, whether you're married or not, is is a wonderful and beautiful illustration of Christ's love for the church who he died for. There's a greater picture, a, a greater theology behind our sexuality that is critically important. And so it makes sense that the enemy of our souls would attack us in this area. And I know, my before I came to know Christ, my addiction of choice was immorality, was sex. And the Lord has brought me uh, uh, out of that and has given me tremendous healing. And I can say sexual purity blesses the generations. When a mother and father are devoted to one another in purity, with Christ on his throne, 
with the marriage bed kept pure and honored by all, whole cities, whole neighborhoods, whole households, whole nations can be reached through that. That's why God established the family. See, he did it so that there would be all of us, you know, there are churches that meet all over the world, and then little congregations called the Hubers, called the Olds, called the Langleys, called the Jacksons, would be all over our cities. And whether you're single or married or divorced or wherever you're at on that spectrum or widowed, it really in the end doesn't matter because marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. And it's to be honored by us all. And we all have a role to play in honoring God through our purity. We honor Christ's vision for purity and intimacy, regardless of our marital status, by pursuing purity. It's a worship. The benefits of self-control are certainly impressive, but they're not something that we receive passively. The Holy Spirit is the driver, but we receive them and uh, 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 walk them out actively. Our wills melding with the power of the Spirit to choose heaven in the moment instead of hell. But some would ask, why does self-control matter? Why does it matter in a world that's kind of abandoned it? It matters because we have a tremendous gift from God that he wants to use, or gifts, I should say, that are given to us at salvation. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Full stop there. He has given us everything we need for a godly life, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. The whole reason why Christ died is to bring us to himself, was to rescue us out of sin so that we could live his life. After Peter lists all these great spiritual assets we receive from God, notice he doesn't say to coast in the very next verses, just to be comfortable with what God's done in the past in our lives. No, in verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. He says, make every effort to add to your faith. In other words, with all these great promises, with this new identity you have in Christ, walk it out. Make every effort. Now, when you make an effort to do something, when I make an effort, we plan, don't we? Making every effort means we plan for godliness. Someone doesn't just become a great musician because they want to. They make plans to become a great musician. The great parents I know in this room, they... They didn't just become that overnight. They read books and they sought counsel from others. They applied themselves. They had a plan. For those of you who have started businesses in this room or are completing your education, you did so with many plans. There were many people who came alongside you to walk that out. So it is with our godliness. We make every effort to live for him. It is our first and foremost effort that must come first. Jesus speaks the same way in Matthew chapter 8, verse 34. He says, Then he called the crowd to him alongside with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves 
and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now focus on that last sentence. Let me read it one more time. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus knows that in the moment, choosing him over the temporal thrill of sin will be very difficult, that it'll feel like a marathon, right? Because he says, you, you have to choose to let go of your life, to lose your life. And it feels like you're really losing something when you choose Christ instead of porn in the moment, doesn't it? It feels like you're losing something, like it would be so more gratifying to choose this temporal pleasure. That it would be better just to waste our time on the internet, or it would be better just to choose self-loathing instead of resting and soaking in our identity in Christ. That it would be better to choose uh, uh, doing uh, some other fun thing other than choosing to get in God's word and talk to him in prayer. Because the lie that Satan has always used since the very beginning is that you're missing out. He whispered it to Adam and Eve in the very beginning, and he whispers it to us. But when we say yes to Jesus and no to that lie, that whisper becomes a shout. And we more readily say yes to our king and no to our enemy. We must remember that this choice to say yes to Jesus is an everyday battle. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to seem impossible. I have to choose to wake up when I would rather roll over to choose service instead of selfishness after dinner when I would rather watch UFC than help my family with the dishes. I do watch UFC. Some of you are judging me right now and saying, Chris, it's bloody, it's violent. Yes, it is. But here's the lesson behind UFC. I fast forward through the ring ladies, you know, who are doing their thing. I fast forward through all that so me and the boys don't have to see that. But it's honest. There are two enemies that are fighting it out. At the end, there's a winner, and somehow it ministers to me. I'm able to, I'm able to engage more in the spiritual battle when I see that. That's how I justify it. Men, women, if you want more justification for watching UFC, I have plenty more in my pocket that I can hand to you. So, uh, But we have to choose. You and I have to choose to share our faith when we'd rather stay quiet and choose safety in the relationship over the salvation of their souls. We're told not to be shocked by these trials that we face when we're attempting to choose self-control over self-gratification. In 1 Peter 4, verse 12, at a time in church history when uh, what they faced was much more difficult than the trials we find ourselves in, it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We know that things are going to get hard. We know that we're going to feel like giving up. We know that doubt will assault us and fear will grip us. It's, it's part of this life. But Jesus, with scarred hands and a blood-soaked brow, suffered and rose that we might be free. So we press on for joy's sake. This is not an easy lifestyle, is it? It's not. We idolize the rich and famous, and we read magazines and shows. I don't, but a lot of people do. Probably many of you do. Uh, shows that are made to inflate their image and make us envious of their lifestyle. Some of us dream of not having to do anything we don't want to someday, and so we're driven to make a lot of money so we can be lazy in retirement and literally entertain ourselves to death. As a result, some of us live in and, of, in and for ourselves 
constantly counting down the days to our next vacation. Our culture relentlessly pounds into our heads that self-discipline is a drag. It's no fun, it's boring, and that it lacks creativity. We then often see it as tedious and hard and only for the elite, and not for somebody as broken as me. But the reality, according to Christianity Today, an article that I read about a year ago, is self-control is the ticket to happiness. It really is. Self-disciplined people actually live in and enjoy the moment more because they're always living for a goal that matters more than them. The self-controlled enjoy a more meaningful, less boring life because they're not self-focused but kingdom-focused. They enjoy rich community instead of isolation because they make their lives about others. They're generally more skilled and knowledgeable and find joy in their work because they do it joyfully, wanting to get better and be better for others instead of begrudgingly just trying to get the job done, doing as little as possible until 5 o'clock. But all this leads up to an important question. Why is self-control, self-discipline so hard? It's hard, isn't it? Whether you're a parent, whether you're a student, whether you're in the marketplace, it's hard. It's so hard. You know, self-help peeps make millions of dollars teaching and writing on how to live a more disciplined life. And it, that's because it's, it's, it's hard for us. And we're always looking for the latest gimmick to make it just a little bit easier. But we have something infinitely more valuable through the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, verse 17, it, gives, it sheds some light on why this is such a struggle. It says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. We're in a battle between doing what the Holy Spirit would have us do, draw closer to Christ through these nine choices, and with our flesh that wants to do the exact opposite. We shouldn't be surprised by it. And Paul paints it in more vivid colors in Romans 7, verse 15. He says, to the church at Rome, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. That's why the worst thing we can do is simply try harder. Our discipline comes out of worship. That is preaching the gospel to ourselves, remembering the basic gospel message. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that I have nothing in and of myself, no uh, clothes of righteousness, no no tools of good deeds that I can offer to God. No way that I can somehow manipulate God to accept me, that it's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that I'm forgiven, and it's only through his indwelling Holy Spirit that I can do anything worthwhile. And when I remember that, self-discipline is energized and mobilized to work in my life. I so love Paul's transparency here, and I think that we would do each other a great service if we would be honest about our own struggles with self-control, just as Paul was in Romans 7. We're in a battle. We want to choose patience, but the temper tantrum is right there. We want to choose love, but lust seems easier and more satisfying. 
Joy is our aim, but worry gives us a self-control, gives us a sense of control, doesn't it? And I think finally, to maybe focus on the positive, the most, uh, uh, the most important reason and the one we, we most often miss as to why we struggle with self-control is because a self-disciplined life for Christ will always leave us hungry this side of heaven. Through pen and paper, the apostle Paul communicated to his friends in Philippi he didn't think he had achieved his ultimate goal for Christ. This is Paul. Listen to him in, in Philippians 3, verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't think he had accomplished his goal of following Christ. I mean, come on, Paul. Many of his letters are canonized. And of course, we benefit from the day. He planted multiple churches in multiple cities and wrote things that have helped millions of Christians grow. But, but he wasn't satisfied. This hunger and thirst for more of God is an awesome hunger. It's a dissatisfaction to be embraced, a holy discontent. That's why the worst thing we can do is think, man, I'm not getting anything out of the Bible, so I'm not going to read it. It's supposed to be a battle. Worst thing we can do is, you know, I, I don't want to be generous with my money. And, you know, since my motives are off, I'm just not going to be generous. Or I don't feel like praying right now or showing compassion right now or you fill in the blank, so I'm just not going to do it because I want to be authentic. That's a lie. That's living in the old self and not our new identity in Christ. It's okay to be dissatisfied in our walk with Christ. It's okay to want to grow. It's okay to not condemn ourselves because of our current level of maturity. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The self-controlled life will leave us wanting more because we'll become more aware of the grace we so desperately need. So the next time you and I think and feel a hunger for more of God, celebrate it. Celebrate that sense of inadequacy and remember the cross and remember that he promises to fill that desire for more righteousness. So let's get to the nitty-gritty. How do we walk out godly self-control? How do we do it? First, we need to start our training. Uh, and I'll just be honest with you guys. We're all wasting our time if we walk out of here tonight and don't work towards a plan for greater intimacy with Christ. I mean, to give a talk on self-control... And not take any practical steps is a waste of our evening, isn't it? First, we need to start our training. 1 Timothy 4.7, have nothing to do with godly myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself. Our will is involved through the grace of Christ, the empowerment of the Spirit, but our will is involved. Start a Bible reading plan. Go to version. You know, that app is, I think it's the most downloaded app in the world. Go to version. There is a plan for, I have blonde hair, live in the Midwest, and like to go to Myrtle Beach on vacation. 
I mean, there is a plan for every, it, it's crazy. It's, it's never been easier to get in. A, you can have notifications that pop up on your phone and uh, you, hey, someone said it's true. Thank you. It is true. Um, if you're struggling to pray, schedule time with someone else who knows Jesus that you know loves to talk to God. Show up at church and home group. We're not to regularly neglect the regular meeting together of the saints. That's a command. Schedule regular time with Ryan Cavanaugh if you want to grow in evangelism. Talk to Phil and Aaron Krauss if you want to grow in mercy. You know, there's a concept now in the business world and in personal growth called habit stacking. And, it, and I like it. I think we can apply it to the faith. It encourages micro changes. Have you heard that? Anybody heard that? Raise your hand. Oh, we've got a couple. I'm surprised. Usually no one's heard of it. Uh, yeah, that makes me feel good. Brandon, we're going to have to chat about that this next week. Uh, micro changes are ridiculously small steps done consistently over time to form big, helpful, life-changing habits. Okay, for example, most of us would say at some point in our life that we wanted to start working out, right? I'm going to start working out. So what we do is uh, we join a gym and attempt to do CrossFit and Krav Maga, which is combat training, from 4 to 8 a.m. every day of the week, seven days of the week. By 5 a.m. the first day, we're so sore we can't move and we decide we're giving it up, all right? Micro changes are the opposite. Most of us are not all or nothing people. Some need to go all out, but that is a small, small minority. Micro changes are the opposite. Again, they're not extreme at first, but rather ridiculously small changes that grow into huge benefits. So try one push-up every day. Get off the couch, spiritually speaking, and do one push-up and celebrate that. And then the next week, you do two, and you do three, and it will take time. I can tell you, I have applied this to my life. And this is just one very small example, and I don't say this to elevate self. You guys know I, I try not to talk about myself too much because I want to make it about Jesus, not me. I might fail you. I will fail you in small ways, hopefully, and not big ways. But Jesus won't. But I'm going to share an example here to his glory. I wanted to memorize more scripture. So I started memorizing one verse a week, years and year, decades ago. And then it was two, and then it was three, and then it became whole books. There's been no single discipline that's changed me more, and it started with one verse a week. Micro changes. This is a marathon. Start small. Celebrate victories. The same is true spiritually. We can try, try one chapter a day or even five verses a day if you're not currently reading the Bible at all. Start small. Start, pray for five minutes. Don't start out thinking you're going to pray for an hour every day. Uh, you know, try asking someone a question about their life every day. Okay, someone like, try ask, if, if you kind of are afraid to talk to people or, or think that maybe there's some, uh, a, a strand of selfish DNA that's uh, poisoning your soul and you're not focused on others, try asking someone a question about their life every day. And listen, and listen well, and you'll find yourself becoming more loving, more evangelistic over time. You will. Start small and think big. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up here. Finally, and this is my favorite, look towards the future. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, and we said that Hebrews is a letter to those who are suffering. It teaches us how to suffer. It teaches us how to go through trials. And it says in Hebrews 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Mental discipline or self-control is important. Could not be more important because that is how mental discipline is the tool God uses to allow us to fix our eyes on Jesus. When we would rather think about self, mental discipline allows us to imagine the effect of our godly selflessness on other people. We begin getting visions of a redeemed workplace. We start imagining the joy of Christ gaining traction and growing in our neighborhoods and local schools. What seemed impossible because of sinful human weakness now seems bright and hopeful because of him who endured such opposition from sinners, he enables us to persevere and not lose heart. Reconciliation in the family becomes more than just a dream. Biblical compassion pours out into poverty and racism, bringing dignity and life. Big, huge, monstrous goals now become possible by him who rose from the dead, who indwells us. Strongholds and addictions are loosened and eventually cast off. And finally, and most importantly, we begin to imagine the day of the Lord when he returns and we become more excited like a kid in a candy store because we think on things above, as it says in Colossians, not on things uh, in our immediate circumstances. Our hearts swell more than the opening pitch of baseball season, which is upon us. More than the main event of a match, our hearts soar even more than they did on the wedding day or the birth or the graduation. We become hungry for God. Though the naysayer of our souls would lie to us and say discipline is not for you, it's boring and lifeless, and you're never going to be able to walk in it, we begin to see that it's life in a bottle, the ultimate energy drink that gives us the strength to choose love instead of selfish lust, joy instead of discouragement and negativity and criticism, peace instead of angst and injustice, patience instead of immediate gratification, kindness instead of self-protection, goodness instead of evil, faithfulness and not fickleness, and gentleness instead of pride. We can choose self-control and find life. It is our choice. And Jesus died so that we might have it. In his name, amen.